Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast is what you're listening to. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Roizen, and we have a wonderful guest for you. Joseph Wallace is a Ph.D., He is a professor and chair of biomedical engineering at Purdue University School of Engineering and Technology at the Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. That's a lot to say, but he is both sponsored by, if you will, or funded by NIH, NSF, and the VA, triple funding, which is amazing, as I know how difficult that is. His field, is collagen in bone. You've obviously heard of collagen in skin. You've heard of collagen supplements. We're going to cover all of those. But first, let me remind you, we are sponsored by Life's First Naturals, the makers of bovine colostrum and TrueBiotics. Go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, and you can find out more about the double-blind studies that show the benefits in preventing upper respiratory infections, the benefits in soccer players actually in preventing bloat after exercise, and in keeping your villi of your intestine longer in the face of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That's lifesfirstnaturals.com and, of course, our own website, longevityplaybook.com. Go to the website to sign up for the free newsletter on longevity. Dr. Wallace, thanks very much for coming on. Let's first get to, if you will, collagen in bone. How did you get involved in the field of collagen in bone? And I thought bone was always kind of like the Eiffel Tower sticks of, if you will, some matrix, some thing on which cholesterol, on which, I'm sorry, on which calcium and other minerals made it hard and firm. What's bone got to do with collagen? I think you know a lot more about bone than many of your listeners may. So I think it's important, like if I say bone to you, what's the first thing that pops into your head? The first thing that pops into my head is the look of a uh, tibia if you will. And the second thing is an erector set that looks like the Eiffel Tower. All right. So typically when I ask people, they say the dog bone that Snoopy carries around, right? So this is the thing that immediately pops into your head. And most people think that bone is this really static and inert thing in our bodies that's really just there to hold up the weight of our soft tissues and help us move around, right? Bone is one of the most metabolically active tissues in our body. And it's important to know that because throughout all of life, bone is constantly turning over to renew and replace itself. It's actually what got me interested in bone in the first place. If you take a a step back to the beginning of my career, I started as an aerospace engineer. You say aerospace engineer, how does that have anything to do with the body? Well, it doesn't, but I became a little bit disenchanted when I was in that field and I started exploring other options. And I took a course as an undergraduate student in pathophysiology taught by a biomedical engineering program. And the, the course taught about bone. And I was totally floored because the thing that blew me away is that bone has this ability to self-repair. It gets damaged and has the ability to fix that damage. And that's an important point to keep in mind. Let me go and interrupt you. One of the things we teach on this program, if I can use the word teach, but inform, is that as you damage each tissue with muscle, for example, in doing weight training, 
you turn on genes that repair it. In your brain, the faster you use it, so people are listening to this having to use their brain faster, they turn on a repair gene for neurons, NPAS4. I assume they do the same thing with bone because when they jump and cause small injury in the bone, you make the bone stronger. Now, I don't know what collagen has to do with that other than you're studying collagen in bone, so that's where I want to go. So bone is very similar to reinforced concrete. So if you think about a parking structure that I'm looking at outside of my window, right, that the deck of that parking structure is made up of a really stiff and really strong concrete. But if you bend it, it breaks in tension every time. And so what do they do? They reinforce that concrete with rebar, with steel bars. And those steel bars that run through the concrete carry what are called tensile loads, loads about pulling apart rather than pushing together. And the same thing is true in your bones. So your bones are built on a scaffold. We call it a triphasic material where you've got a really soft and ductile collagen that can stretch a lot, just like the collagen in your skin. And that collagen is impregnated with and then surrounded by a stiffer, stronger, reinforcing mineral. Those two things combined have the ability to be very stiff and very strong, but also quite ductile, which is not typical of materials. Materials usually have to balance one versus the other, and our bones have the ability to do both. And it goes back to that point I was mentioning about damage, because during the process of loading our bones, when they develop damage, rather than breaking, right, rather than leading to a catastrophic fracture, which is a terrible thing, they develop that damage, and that damage is then biologically repaired. And so it allows the structure to hold up without a fracture. Now, when a hockey player bounces against or is bounced against the wall, does his bone bend? It does. It's, it's an imperceptible bending, right? The strains that are induced in the bones are very small, but those very small strains cause magnifications of the level of strain that reaches down to the cells that live inside of the bone. So what we perceive as a very small bending leads to a pretty robust mechanical or biological response. Now, we have two things I know of in the bone, what are called osteoblasts, which build bone, and osteoclasts, which tear it down and help with remodeling. Fit what you've told us so far with my limited knowledge. So you're overlooking the third and what I would argue is the most important cell in the bone, and that's called an osteocyte. So when the osteoblasts are the bone-forming cells, as they form bone, it starts as a non-mineralized collagen that eventually mineralizes. During the process of laying down that collagen, some of the cells become impregnated in that collagen matrix, which ultimately mineralizes. And these cells remain intact inside of your bones. So you think of this bone, this hard structure, it's impregnated with cells. It's got more cell density than almost any tissue in the body. So you start with osteoblasts, they lay down collagen, and inside that collagen layer, if you will, or inside that are the osteoblasts, which have now formed osteocytes. That's correct. They mature into osteocytes and they stop producing collagen and they take on a stellar appearance and they look almost like dendrites where they have appendages that stick out from their cell body in all directions and intimately connect with cells all around them and ultimately to the surfaces of the bone. And so now you've got this interconnected network that's filled with fluid. And every time you load your bones and push that bone, the fluid squeezes past the cells. And that squeezing past the cells causes streaming potentials on the surface of the cells and stretching of the cell bodies, all of which drive a biological response. Where are the osteoclasts? So the osteoclasts are mostly lying inside of the bone marrow. So the osteocytes and the osteoblasts come from what's called a mesenchymal lineage. 
and the osteoclasts are more of a hematopoietic lineage. So they're blood cells, effectively, immune cells, right? And so they primarily reside and are formed inside of the marrow, and then they have the ability to go and penetrate the bone. So this all comes back to the question of damage, right? Imagine that you've got all of these cells inside of the bone reaching out in all directions, and a crack forms inside of that bone. Well, it might sever the arm of one of those cells. Those cells then signal to the surfaces to say, hey, there's damage here. And the osteoclasts then have the ability to bore through the bone and go and selectively target that damaged area. Wow. Okay. So now what does the food we eat have to do with bone repair? We're often sold collagen in supplements, if you will, as good for the skin. And I've always thought, geez, it's the same amino acids. They all get broken down by the stomach acid and intestine. Why do I need expensive collagen when I can eat cheap salmon or uh, chicken? I 100% agree with you. I have never understood how I can eat anything that's an amino acid that doesn't get completely broken down into its individual amino acids and then reassembled by the body into what it needs to be. So I've actually performed one study looking at the impacts of dietary supplements. And albeit it was a small study, but we didn't really see anything. We did conjoint sulfate and collagen and you know fish oil, all of these different things that are sold as supplements that should be able to enhance the integrity of your skin or your bones. So my answer is I don't think there is any direct impact of those supplements. Now, to say that there's no direct impact of the diet would be short-sighted because there's a very strong relationship between the gut and the bone. And so if your gut's out of whack, if you're not eating the right diet, if you don't have the right flora present in your gut, it's going to have an intimate direct contact on the skeleton as it does with every other tissue. Now, since we know that collagen is otherwise in the skin as well as in the bone, when you starve, does the collagen go from, or do you absorb collagen from the skin and support bone, or does the bone support the skin, or is it a mutual support system and it just depends which supports which, or we don't know yet? I'm going to plead ignorance. I don't think we know anything about that. I mean, it's when I think of the bone being broken down to support other aspects of the body, it's much more likely that the bone is broken down for its mineral content, right? The bone is actually the storehouse for the body's mineral, and it uses it in times of need, like with dietary need or during lactation, the body liberates large amounts of calcium from the bones, and then it has to replace that later. Teach me a little bit about K2 and D and their role I'm looking at you as the bone expert in metabolism and laying down of minerals and collagen and everything else in bone. So you're allowed to say, I don't know, because I'm asking weird questions. So one of the things we know in bone repair, we think we know, is that giving adi- when you have a fracture, giving adequate calcium, vitamin D2, D3, and K2, are important. Teach me about D and K2, would you? And what their role is in getting calcium and bone? Again, it's complex and it goes back to the interplay between the kidney at this point, which leads into a a good conversation for me, the kidney, the gut, and the bone. I don't want to really go into the biochemistry about what's happening because the steps associated with converting one into the other are pretty deep. What I will say with certainty is calcium and vitamin D are absolutely critical to bone health how supplementation 
leads to stronger bones is still a complete mystery. And ultimately, not every doctor agrees that those supplements are necessary. But as I would say for the collagen supplementation we talked about earlier, there's nothing wrong with taking these things. I don't think they're harming you in any way. I just don't know that there's as strong of a connection about supplementing vitamin D and calcium into the diet and having a direct impact on the skeleton. We're talking with Joey Wallace, who's a professor and chair of biomechanical engineering at Purdue University. And since I have a biomechanical engineer graduate student in the family, a daughter-in-law, she's at Penn, I can find out. Tell me more, what is biomechanical engineering and what fields does it encompass in addition to bone? So biomedical engineering is the name of the field. And the field itself takes engineering principles and physics and math applied to anything that impacts human health care and healthcare delivery. And by nature, that makes it an incredibly broad field, right? In the field itself, you have people like myself who focus very exclusively on benchtop research, right? I do translational work looking at a very specific tissue in the body and collaborate with biologists who look at the same tissue and we're doing benchtop work. But there's a whole arm of our field that is focused on technology development and building things that are used to deliver healthcare to patients in the clinic. And so it makes it exciting because there's a lot of opportunities, but very broad. So we have to teach our students about a lot of different things all across you know, the engineering spectrum. So our students learn electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and chemical engineering within BME, in addition to biology and organic chemistry and all of these other things. It's a really broad and exciting field, honestly. And I should tell you, although these podcasts are oral only, when I look at Joey Wallace, right behind him is a skeleton, which is perfect for someone working on bones and obviously good at helping recruit students. Tell me a little bit more about Purdue. Does Purdue in your biomedical engineering group focus more on bone or is it a broad range? I know I've spoken to someone there before about infections. So it's pretty broad. And the fact of the matter is I'm in Indianapolis and Purdue is in West Lafayette and Purdue is now moving into the city and we'll have a physical footprint in Indianapolis for the first time, which is very exciting because from my office, I'm looking across at the IU School of Medicine, which is the largest medical school in the country. And within a half mile radius of where I'm sitting, there are five independent hospitals. For the work we do and for the students that we teach, it's an ideal place to be because we can place students in a clinical environment and they can see exactly what it means to interact with a clinician and a patient to find the needs that an engineer can ultimately solve. So that's what engineers are good at. We're problem solvers, right? So one of the things you've done is looked at AGE or advanced glycosylation end products with bone and I guess it would be with heated bone. So when does our bone get heated and how does this play into AGE and disease? So your body is sitting at 37 degrees Celsius right now. So it's, it's being heated. So the idea of AGEs is an important one. It specifically ties into the diabetes work I've been doing. And although it's a little bit controversial right now, the prevailing logic is this. If I take protein and sugar and expose them to heat, there's a reaction that occurs. You've all seen this. You've seen this reaction. If I take a piece of bread and put it in a toaster, it turns brown. If I take a piece of meat or tofu and I put it in a pan, it turns brown. 
Well, the same thing happens in your bones. And what's happening is a chemical crosslink is forming within the collagen network. And specifically in the presence of diabetes, where you've got elevated blood glucose, that sugar combined with the protein forms a linkage. And what this linkage does without going into the depths of collagen mechanics is typically collagen is, is ductile. And the presence of that mineral that's right around the collagen allows some amount of sliding to occur, which is how the bone is able to bend but not break. When you start to indiscriminately form these cross-linking events within that collagen structure, it limits the ability to deform as much as it should and can lead to premature fractures or brittle-related fractures in the tissue. And this is what's thought to drive some of the fracture risk that's, that's occurring in diabetic patients. Do diabetics have an increased fracture risk compared to the rest of us? It's a somewhat loaded question because, you know, there's multiple types of, of diabetes, right? But the short answer is yes. There is a relative increase in fracture risk in diabetic patients. I'm going to tell you something that makes it even worse, though. 37 million Americans have diabetes, which is a really bad number. At the same time, about 15% of Americans have chronic kidney disease. And you're like, what's the link between these two? Well, there's a very distinct link because 45% of chronic kidney disease cases are driven by diabetes. And each of these have skeletal implications. When you put the two diseases together and they come together very often, patients with comorbid disease have a 400% increase in fracture risk over the general population. That number's terrible. What makes that number worse is between 50 and 60% of those people who fracture die within one year of sustaining that fracture. So those numbers together, we're facing a, a big problem. So since much of type 2 diabetes is reversible or preventable, as we talk about on this program often, is the browning of our collagen in bones inevitable? Does it require a high glucose level? Talk to me a little more about that, if you would. It does. So the event requires fairly high glucose. And if you've ever heard of what number is used to diagnose a person with diabetes or a number that's monitored, it's HbA1c, right? That HbA1c is glycated hemoglobin. So it's a glycation event that's occurring in the blood. That's a metric to diagnose or to monitor diabetes. At the same time that that glucose is high enough to glycate hemoglobin, it's probably high enough to glycate collagen in the bone matrix. So the whole idea is to minimize that glucose level as much as possible. Got it. We've been talking with Joey Wallace, Joseph M. Wallace, PhD, formally. You can Google him at Purdue University, Indianapolis. He is the biomedical engineering chair and professor at Purdue University in Indianapolis. Thank you very much for being on the show. And to tell others that you can find out more about collagen and bone at his website. And it's a pretty complex name. So just Google him at Purdue University in Indianapolis. We, as usual, are sponsored by Lace First Naturals, the makers of both probiotic, truebiotic, and of bovine colostrum two things that'll help you stay healthier, go to their website and find out the randomized controlled data that they've done in randomized controlled studies relating to prevention of upper respiratory infection and prevention of bloating and 
if you will, shortening of intestinal villi that is making the intestine more permeable, they prevent that after non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or after exercise. That's bovine colostrum. Go to lifesfirstnaturals.com. And of course, our website, which is a lot more data on longevity, and you can not only find those things in the library at our website, but sign up for the free newsletter at longevityplaybook.com. A special thanks to Joey Wallace, but really what motivates us, what motivates us is you downloading the program, 50,000 of you a week, can't be wrong. Obviously, if you listen to this one, you're probably right, because this was a great interview. Thanks, Joey. And we'll be back next week. We hope you are as well.